Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's easy to take a familiar face for granted. When the pandemic began, England's chief medical officer was just five months into his role. And as luck would have it. The thing about Chris Whitty is here was someone who knew his way around government, knew how to deal with ministers, but also was this very well-established infectious disease doctor. He's calm in a crisis, he's calm in every situation. In two incidents last weekend, Chris Whitty had those nerves tested. First, anti-lockdown protesters chanted murderer and traitor outside what they thought was his London home. And then there were calls for police protection after he was grabbed in a Westminster park. It's a reminder of how, as the pandemic was changing all of our lives, this most private of men was forced into the pressure cooker of public life. 16 months on, how well do any of us really know the doctor charged with keeping the country safe? We'll hear from friends and critics. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today... Professor Chris Whitty, a very private man in a very public role. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm now going to hand over to Chris Whitty to do the slides. Thank you, Prime Minister. First slide, please. Uh, these slides are, uh, I think, familiar to most people who watch this. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. This is not someone else's problem. This is all of our problem. Next slide, please. There are two sides to the chief medical officer job. Two Chris Whitties, if you like. Next slide, please. There's the man we know from the press conferences, carefully explaining the pandemic to the public. This graph is a simple one. Next slide, please. What we have here are two maps. And the other part of the job is behind the scenes, being an independent expert voice and sometimes having to set ministers straight. I've always said that I thought there was a reasonable chance things would be a lot better in the spring. I, I, I don't recall I've ever personally said by Easter, but I think the Prime Minister may have quoted me as saying that rather generously. There's a spring after Easter. There is a spring after Easter, yes. OK. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. With restrictions just weeks away from easing, it's time to look back on how he's handled the role. Final slide. There's some uh, very good news in this, and that's at the bottom of this graph. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Chris. One person who knows more than most is Ben Spencer. I'm Ben Spencer. I'm the science editor of The Sunday Times. Ben has just written a profile of Chris Whitty, and it all started with a surprise call on New Year's Day. The AstraZeneca vaccine had just been approved. And as they did it, 
they changed the dosing interval for the Pfizer vaccine. And all these trials had been done based on three weeks between doses. And this story had been brewing that they had changed it from three weeks to 12 weeks, the dosing gap. People were getting quite angry about it. The British Medical Association, which is the doctor's union, had just come out and said that they didn't support the gap. No other nation in the world has adopted the 12-week delay uh, like the UK. I mean, all those other countries are also suffering similar pressures, but their scientists have adopted a position to try and keep to the manufacturer's guidance. I'd been digging around it all, all that New Year's Day, and the Department of Health was getting increasingly concerned about my questions. And suddenly... It says, right, the chief medical officer will be on the phone in five minutes. Oh, wow. And there he was. It's unexpected. Yeah, it was unexpected because I knew he had been actually working at UCLH, a hospital in North London, that day. So he had actually finished his shift and then there was a journalist asking questions. So he was on the phone defending the policy. It's quite unusual for a chief scientific officer like, like him to be spending the day working as a doctor. I remember the first time he revealed that he continued to work as a doctor two or three weeks before Christmas. Professor Witte, you said earlier this week that loosening at Christmas comes with a risk. And one of the journalists at the evening press conference had said, what would you be doing over Christmas? Do you really think it's a good idea that's over Christmas? We can travel hundreds of miles across the country and hug and kiss elderly relatives who we haven't seen for nine months in many cases. Which one of you will specifically be doing that? Will you be visiting your family? Mm. And Chris Whitty actually said... Uh, in answer to your direct question about what I'll be doing, actually, I'll be on the wards. I'll be working on the wards. I've spoken to lots of his colleagues, and it's something he has continued to do throughout his decade as a government advisor. He says he self-defines as a doctor, and it's very important that he does so. And interestingly, I discovered during researching this piece, he's actually not paid to do that work, which is... That is surprising. He only does it when Parliament's not sitting, so he'll do it at Christmas, Easter and the long summer break. So when he got on the phone to you, what did he say? It was quite a moment because generally if a trial is done where someone gets a vaccine one day and then a second dose three weeks later... That's what you do in practice. Now, Chris Whitty was saying, let's not follow the trial data. Let's extend that gap to 12 weeks. In, in a way now, it's kind of hard to remember just how controversial that was. But I remember, I mean, there was an international row about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can understand the reason why that is being done, but I would be concerned about that. Anthony Fauci, who's the chief medical advisor to the US government, was on the telly saying, no, we won't be following that. You don't get full efficacy until you get that second dose. You can actually select more for mutations when you do that. This was a controversial thing to do. But Chris Whitty's argument is very simple. That is to allow us to maximise over the first 12 weeks, the number of people who can be vaccinated. That should provide a high degree, not the complete protection, because everybody should have their second dose at 12 weeks, but that should provide a high degree of protection and get us through that as fast as we can, because we are facing a really serious uh, emergency at the moment. Bear in mind, this was when the Kent variant was going out of control. Hospitals were filling up, as Whitty had seen in UCLH that week. 
London hospitals are under extreme pressure. A warning from all four chief medical officers that the health services are at risk of being overwhelmed within three weeks. The next few weeks are going to be the worst weeks of this pandemic. This whole area will become a red zone. London has been declared as having a major incident. The emergency services can't cope. We need to really double down. He thought we could be fairly sure that one dose would give enough protection to last 12 weeks. However, there wasn't the evidence. So it was a big risk to take. Back in January, we spoke to one virologist who feared the worst. Paul Beanash, one of the world's leading HIV researchers, told us... That, to me, just gives the virus everything it needs to learn how to evade immune systems. If my feared scenario were to play out, the vaccine will start to fail. In retrospect, that probably saved thousands of lives, that decision. And I must point out that it wasn't just Chris Whitty alone who made that decision. But what people in Downing Street and Sage just said to me, if Chris Whitty hadn't backed it, and who hadn't actually made the argument for it, it would never have even got off the drawing board because it was such a radical step. But to do that saved a lot of lives. We've now given a first dose to 82% of all adults. The latest data show that the vaccination programme has already saved over 14,000 lives. It sort of gives you a sense of this, you know, otherwise quite enigmatic man. You know, there's clearly something there that allows him to fight against the crowd and persuade people to come with him. Tell me what you found interesting about the man. Well, he's got an absolutely fascinating backstory. He grew up in Malawi and Nigeria. His father was a diplomat, worked for the British Embassy and also the British Council all over the world. He was sent to boarding school later on. And he had this tragedy very early on in his life. Police in Athens have launched a major hunt for the killer of the British diplomat, Mr. Kenneth Whitty, who was shot dead in the city yesterday. When he was 17, his father, Kenneth Whitty, was assassinated in Greece, where he was head of the British Council, in what appeared to be a case of mistaken identity. Kenneth Whitty, who was 44 at the time, had bought a car from an MI6 agent. He was driving along in his Ford Escort through Athens. The assassins, these Palestinian terrorists, actually thought that was the guy in the car. The Times, April the 4th, 1984. Obituary for Mr Kenneth Whitty. The shooting down of Kenneth Whitty in Athens last week has robbed Britain of a man of immense potential leadership. His readiness to take risks, his idealism and commitment to principles did not endear him to all his seniors. He was entirely fearless, always direct in his approach and adhering to strongly held convictions. He leaves behind four teenage sons. So that was in the early 80s, just a few months before his A-levels, which is another thing people just don't know about him. No. How did he cope? It's something he just does not talk about. So last question. This is the one you're going to hate because you're a celebrity now, mate. You are. You're going to be overwhelmed by invitations to go on Strictly, MasterChef, Desert Islands and all that lot. And I know you'd rather eat glass. 
But one question, how do you relax? Um, uh, it, very boringly by um, either going out into, you know, hills and mountains or kayaking or going for a run. But yeah, hanging out with friends and just getting out. That is a pretty dull answer. This is a man who's very, very private, unmarried, doesn't have children, doesn't have a family, and dedicates himself to his life's work. But he will not do your classic interview. He won't sit down and talk to you about his personal life. So I had to do this whole profile without talking to Chris Whitty, apart from conversations I'd had with him in the past. I could only talk to his colleagues because he just was not interested in engaging on that personal media spotlight. That's so intriguing. But he went on and went to Oxford, got his medical degree. So even um, though his father had been assassinated when he was 17, just about to take his A-levels, he clearly did well academically. Yeah, I mean, later in life, even when he was, you know, well qualified as a doctor, in his spare time, he just collects degrees. He's got degrees in law, economics, he's got an MBA. Um, wow. These are things that he's done in his spare time, these, these kind of distance learning courses. Just for fun? Well, I think... I think. <laughs> I mean, as someone who did an economics degree, I find that hard to believe. I know. <laughs> well, it, it shows that when, when he stands up at the Downing Street press conferences, he does it from a position of great knowledge and learning. He's clearly had a very colourful childhood with his parents being in different parts of Africa before, obviously, the tragedy of his father's death. Did any of that contribute to his interest in infectious disease and the sort of area of medicine he went on to concentrate in? Yeah, I think so. I mean, colleagues say that that early period of his life drove him as a doctor. His grandparents, his his mother's parents were both doctors in Ghana in the 20s. His grandmother actually set up Ghana's first maternity hospital. And when he was at boarding school in Malvern, and his parents were abroad, he would spend holidays with his grandmother, who was this great influence. So when, when he, after he graduated from Oxford, he spent a lot of time in Africa and also Vietnam, where he worked a lot on malaria, he worked on HIV. And he came back to the UK when he was 29 to go for a job at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I spoke to David Maybe, who was actually on the interview panel. He was clearly exceptionally interested in tropical medicine and public health, very interested in politics. Even though he was only 29 going for this job, and there were many older people on the panel, he just had such a kind of appetite for learning. He was clearly an excellent young doctor and so when it came to the interview for a medical registrar job although there were some more senior candidates who on the face of it seemed better qualified we offered him the job and i've known him ever since coming up how chris witty has navigated his time as chief medical officer and what his supporters and his critics say about his handling of the pandemic but first, focus now. It's a message from the boss. Hello, I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. What do we know about how his career progressed? I mean, how did he end up advising governments? It was in, I think, 2009 that he was invited to be the chief scientific advisor for the Department for International Development. And it was only a few years later that Ebola struck. There's a deadly outbreak in Africa. Experts from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control have rushed in which was 2013-14. The science and the epidemiology for this is, is changing every week. So what I'm doing is I'm giving a snapshot of the Ebola epidemic in the middle of December 2014. It was a huge deal. The largest and most serious infectious disease problem since the emergence of HIV. At the time, there was great concern that Ebola was going to spread. The mathematics of transmission are very simple. The casualty is taken to hospital and tested for Ebola. This is the front line of our defence, a highly secure isolation unit. It's not real life. This NHS film shows a vital test of the UK's emergency plans. Health officials in the UK are confident their plans are robust. When Sally Davies, who was his predecessor, stepped down in 2019, bear in mind, we didn't know COVID was coming. The fact that Chris Whitty knew his way around emergency response certainly stood in good standing. And when it struck, he was the perfect man. But not everyone agrees. I have no reason to believe other than that Chris Whitty is a highly dedicated, passionate physician. But I don't think that he was the right person for the beginning of this pandemic. That's Professor John Ashton, the former president of the Faculty of Public Health and for 13 years, the Director of Public Health for Northwest England. When the pandemic arrived, only one of the four chief medical officers had had a proper, full public health training, which consists of five years training. My understanding is that Chris Whitty had done a one-year Master's in Epidemiology, which is just one part of a full training. And, you know, he wouldn't really have qualified to be a a member of the Faculty of Public Health. And I think it's worth bearing that in mind. Over 150,000 people have died in this pandemic, and a large proportion of those have died unnecessarily because of the failure of concerted action by government and its advisors in the early months. The idea of wearing masks was poo-pooed by the deputy chief medical officer, not corrected by the chief medical officer. And in fact, it was pretty apparent mask wearing had an important part to play. And it was later on a complete U-turn had to be performed. So I, I think what we're seeing here is somebody who came in green, if you will, to the new job, into a, yes, a very difficult situation with a prime minister who was quite difficult to deal with. You know, it's, it's confusing, I think, to people if you're faced with a good chap who's credible in his own way, but who really hasn't managed to do what was needed in those early days and weeks and months. 
Professor Ashton also questions the benefit of Chris Whitty's time on the wards. Having responsibility for the response to a pandemic is a full-time job. And it sounds very commendable to be going and appearing on the wards, but I'm afraid that's not what the job of National Director of Public Health is. The clinical work needs to be left to those who are doing it full-time. And overall... I think what we've seen in recent months is that he's grown, in a sense, into the role. He's been more willing to challenge the Prime Minister and other ministers over the last few months. I would say 10 out of 10 for effort, but could do better. And let's see how he develops. We follow the science. That's what I think the public would expect us to do. We've got to follow the science at every step. We are following the science. And we are following the science. Is there a sense, though, that we are a bit slow compared to other countries in following the science? I'll let Chris uh, comment on the technical aspects. It's clear that when the inquiry comes, the government's defence will be, we followed the science we did what our advisors told us. So the question is, what did the advisors tell them? I mean, one of the things that's already come to light is that Chris Whitty thought people would not stick with a lockdown and that therefore we should delay imposing lockdown on the country until we absolutely needed to. An important part of the science on this is actually the behavioural science. People start off with the best of intentions but enthusiasm at a certain point starts to flag. What's really surprising about that decision is that the behavioural scientists who were advising the government at the time were saying the opposite. They thought people would comply. Yeah, it's all a bit murky at that point, but certainly exactly what was said and when. These are the things that they're likely to be asked about. There was also a sense that Chris Whitty didn't quite believe the modelling that people like Neil Ferguson were giving in February. Now, what Professor Ferguson is correctly doing is say, well, what's the reasonable worst case? That's Chris Whitty speaking to BBC Radio 4 on the 13th of February 2020. Then we have to go away and work out how the NHS is best configured to cope with all the various scenarios that come out. But that potentially involving hundreds of thousands of people who die. Well, I think it's, I think it's a mistake to put numbers in which are entirely speculative. It was only when COVID hit Italy... And Chris Whitty was actually talking to other doctors in Italy that he started to get really worried about the impact on the NHS. It's very easy to be wise after the event. That's David Maybe again, the professor who was on young Chris Whitty's interview panel. And he clearly persuaded the government that, you know, lockdown was needed. I felt we were extremely lucky to have him. Big man. Hello. You're a liar. You're a liar. Mandy is a liar. As the public face of the pandemic, last week's harassment is only the latest case of Chris Whitty being pursued by COVID conspiracy theorists. He was heckled in the street by a, a teenager and the, the video went viral. You lie about the COVID-19 cases, man. Come on, man, stop lying to the TV, man. Liar. And he was asked about it at the Downing Street press conference. He just brushed it aside. The odd young lad showing off occasionally 
happens. I, I didn't think anything of it, frankly. I was very surprised he was picked up by the media at all as anything of any importance. I'm sure he'll become a, a model citizen in due course. Nonetheless, ministers have expressed shock and concern at the increasing targeting of Chris Whitty. The Times reported yesterday that he's to be given greater protection. But much of the attention he receives is of a less threatening variety. He never feels the strain. He's got a massive brain. He's on a big committee. That's why we love Chris Whitty. He's kind of become a really unlikely cultish figure. There are mugs and T-shirts. I think Grayson Perry's done a sculpture of him. There are songs about him. We are living with this virus for a very long time. We are not at the end of this. We're in the middle of it. You have to take a risk and there are no risk-free options. We all need to stop this coming back. Isolating the virus. All of us all need to isolate the virus. What do you think he makes of that as a response? He's intensely private. He absolutely hates it. Professor David Maybe admits to being a full T-shirt-wearing member of the fan club. I have a T-shirt myself. It says the Chris Whitty Appreciation Society. I sometimes wear it and people come and tell me how much they like him when I'm out walking in the park. Isolating the virus. All of us. All of us. Isolating the virus. on top of this. How do you think history will judge him? I think he'll come out well. The inquiry next year will be key, but... I think certainly from mid to late March onwards, he probably hasn't put a foot wrong. I mean, I like to think what would have happened if Dame Sally Davis had still been chief medical officer. Because, you know, Sally Davis had been vilified by the press for telling us not to drink so much and not to eat junk food on public transport. And I think it's questionable whether the British people would have listened to her had she said, stay at home. This balance you have to get between nannying on the one hand, or being accused of it at least, and on the other hand, sort of banality, stating things that are obvious. I thought you were going to be sexist. Um, I... What, what bit of that is sexist? I wonder whether you'd say to a male chief medical officer... No, no I, I said you are often accused of being a nanny. I didn't say no. I accused you of being a nanny. Oh. You are often said, are you not? Clever. I'm not defending that attitude and the treatment she got, but it might have been a very different pandemic for us all. And now things do seem to be going fairly well, fingers crossed, for a reopening around the 19th of July. And if we do get to post-pandemic and we stop seeing quite so much of him, I mean, um, as a parting gift, should should we just buy him a clicker? Yes, indeed. Indeed. Somebody give the man a clicker. (laughs) Quite. Can you click the slide, please? Next slide, please. Next slide, please. And I think that is the last slide. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Sunday Times science editor, Ben Spencer, Professor David Maybe from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and former president of the Faculty of Public Health, Professor John Ashton. John Ashton's book, Blinded by Corona, How the Pandemic Ruined Britain's Health and Wealth, was published in October. And you can find all of Ben Spencer's reporting at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers today were James Shield, Chris Wade and Marilyn Rust. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes 
or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help other people to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.